The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. David will enjoy this. David Bowers, a lot of David's in here, but David Bowers will enjoy this because he picked at me at lunch about changing my mind, changing my sermon several times, and I did that all afternoon. And so I'll admit what we're going to discuss this evening is not what I would have announced this morning. I hope I didn't announce anything, but I'd be careful about saying I didn't. But it is different than that. I changed my mind. And uh, so just looking around, thinking around, and considering my own life mainly. I like to preach things that I need, and I know what I need right now, so hopefully you'll need the same. You understand what it means to be committed, right? To commit yourself to something. Uh, I faced just a few weeks ago, as is on your announcements as it's rolling, and I appreciate the love that's shown in doing that, but I faced that decision just a few weeks ago when we went into court and adopted our new little girl, Libby Joy Maddie Merle. And basically all that took place, and it's all that took place with Maya just a year or so ago, and I expect, hopefully, and Lord willing, with Ella, maybe in the next few months, all that really took place inside that courtroom was basically we were sworn in, and then we were only asked questions concerning our commitment to that child. Do you understand, Jim and Jennifer Merle, Jane's proper name, but Jim and Jennifer Merle, do you understand that by signing these documents and by agreeing to what we're going to agree to today, that you're committing, that was the word that the lawyer used, that you're committing yourself to a lifelong commitment to care for this child. And of course we agreed. Went on to explain that, that this was a permanent situation that could not legally be reversed and that this child was going to be ours just as if they were born to us by physical birth. And of course, Again, involving commitment, and, and again, we agreed. Because I understand, at least in that part of life, what commitment's all about. As you know, I've got five children, and if I were going to back out, I would have backed out nearly 16 years ago as a father. I would have backed out on my wife probably 23 years ago as a husband. I would have found a way out if I wasn't determined in those physical relationships to be committed but what about my spiritual relationship? I guess it's been, I can't do math very well, at least I'm not going to attempt, but it's probably been, and, and I was a latecomer, even though I was reared up in the church, it's probably been, I would assume, 24 or 5 years since I obeyed the gospel. I wonder really if I understood then, that day, that evening is when it was, nighttime, I wonder if I really understood and thought it all the way through how committed I was going to have to be to be a child of God's. And you think about your life. Many of you have been Christians twice that long or three times that long. Did you understand then, way back then, for some of you, maybe just months or years ago, did you understand then what kind of commitment was going to be required of you to maintain your sonship or daughtership, if you want to relate it that way, to God. Has there ever been a time in your life when you questioned that commitment? 
when you thought to yourself, you know what, I just don't know if this is really worth what's all been involved. I don't know if this is really the pattern and path that I, I thought was coming, where you had to kind of have a reset in your mind and consider that, I'm using the word again, that commitment, that promise that you made to God years and years ago for some, months, whatever, decades, half century or better, that you made to Christ. Again, I sat around today discussing, having small talks. Some of you went to lunch, others I stayed in your home, and I thought to myself during that conversation as I'm trying to be engaged, I wondered how committed I really am, how committed I can be, and how willing I'd be to go in the long haul with God, as I've already done, I hope, for 25, four or five years. Take your Bibles and open them with me to a very familiar text, and I, I make Every bit of intention on telling you tonight, I'm going to use for our discussion an extremely familiar text, one that most of you, if not all, could quote along with me if you, if you chose to do that. We probably won't for order, but a very familiar text tonight, and I hope, and as I examined it, looking at it, reviewing the text again, and I'm not saying I only studied 15 minutes ago. I study these texts all the time. But I want to hopefully give you about four or five words, just words, not entire points to have to remember, but four or five words that you can use to apply to the context and call yourself and ask yourself if you've really committed or if you need to be more committed to the cause of God. Now that familiar text is very simple, Romans chapter 12. I mentioned it in passing this morning. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons it came up was because of something I said this morning where I had to convince myself that what I was saying I could stand behind and it certainly was biblical, but could I stand behind it? But Romans chapter 12, let's just examine for the next few moments the very, the first two verses and then we may turn a time or two. I've, I've got a, a Gideon pew Bible here because I left my Old Testament in the car and I thought of a passage we need to go to. So we'll use, you can use something besides your Gideon pew Bible there, but I want to look at this context here in Romans chapter 12. Just notice a few things from it. Let's read it together first of all. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote, of course, by inspiration. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, key word, next one, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And of course, we know verse 2, Likewise, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, typically speaking, I might back up into chapter 11 and talk about some things. I might go forward in chapter 12 to get the context. We're going to treat it a little bit different tonight. The first thing I want you to notice from this, and it comes in that first, uh, really two phrases, the way I've got it broken down in my mind, is based upon those words, I beseech you therefore, brethren, next phrase, by or through the way of the mercies of God. Ask yourself, first of all, what is my, here's the word, motivation for serving God? What is my motivation for serving God? Of course, practical applications are easy in that. I wonder if sometimes my motivation for serving God was not what I was taught as a child, was not what I'm encouraged to do as a husband, as a father, as a preacher, quote unquote, or, or just by my peers sitting on the end of the pew. Is that my motivation for serving God or do I see more in that? When God inspired the apostle to write this, and you well understand this, when he inspired him to write those words, as the King James translates it at least, 
I beseech, beseech you, therefore, brethren, understand that what you're looking at here is the apostle, in one sense, literally down on his knees, begging the brethren in Rome, begging the brethren, whoever would read this, including us, he's begging of them to consider, next phrase, the mercies of God. And one of the things I've had to teach myself over the years, and I'm assuming this is correct, and hopefully if you, if you desire, you can agree with this or disagree, but if these Bible books, and they are, but if these Bible books are inspired of God and therefore just penned by men, then ask yourself the question, is it really Paul begging or who? It's God. Literally speaking here, uh, I've oftentimes heard people and even said it, you know, I can't wait till I get to heaven to hear the voice of God. Or I can't wait till I get to heaven because I'm going to sit down with Jesus and ask him questions. And I hope he preaches and I hope he encourages like he did, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Or I hope he did this or he, he tells me that or he explains this. But the truth of the matter is, honestly, that every single time I open my copy of God's word, if I understand it for what it is, I'm literally sitting at the feet of God himself and hearing his words. And so literally speaking, what's being said here is God says to us, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by my mercy, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, we won't get in this phrase yet because it's not what we're talking about, but that's how I'm drawing the connection here that you have to be committed if I'm going to give my body up to be a sacrifice, and the Old Testament people, the people of law of Moses, and the New Testament Christians who had lived there, understood there, been there, done that, or were doing that, those people understood that when those words were being penned and now spoken and uttered, that they were being called upon to put themselves to death. Meaning I don't have a character myself. I don't have within myself uh, just who I want to be. I'm only set forth and given permission to, for lack of better terms, to be who God wants me to be. So motivation. Now let's turn a few times. I, I, I can't do this in New Testament. This will be re very rare for me. So if this excites you, this will be your excitement for the next few minutes. Let's go back and let's ask or beg of the book of Romans, not of any other book. But let's beg of the book of Romans, all one unit, all one letter. Let's ask the question, what do those mercies of God pertain to? Mercy's based upon love. Love's based upon truth. Truth is founded only in God. What do the truthful, loving mercies of God, what do they pertain to? Let's go back. I'm going to flip a little bit. We'll flip all the way back to the first chapter, come all the way back up to where we are, and beg that question. Go back to chapter 1 of the book of Romans. Of course, if you're fearful that we're going to discuss the whole book of Romans, we're not. We're going to pick a few verses as we travel back up to chapter 12 and understand in our minds that this is really the context of chapter 12. Chapter 12 was never intended to be a, a freestanding unit, was never intended to be just used by the two verses we're going to use without we take some insight. So let's ask ourselves the question, in my motivation, which are based upon the mercies of God, how has God been so merciful? How is God so great? Look with me at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I'm just going to pull a few verses here. Look in verse 17. Romans 1 and verse 17. Here's what it says now. This is the character of God. For therein is, righteous, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What's said there? 
He says you can see in a vision, in a picture that is as clear as any uh, cell phone or digital camera or whatever you've got or could access, you can see as clearly the righteousness of God being revealed in front of your eyes through faith. How? Because God is merciful. Because God sees us for what we are, for what's on the inward of me, myself as a man, you, whatever. He sees us and looks down upon us and he says, you know what? That person needs righteousness and the only way they can get it is through me. And the only way they can access me in this sense and in this realm of life is through faith. That's part of God's mercy. And that's chapter 1. Turn the page there if you have to. I'm going to have to turn for it. You may not. But go with me into chapter 2 now. Let's look into chapter 2. Uh, just pulling some verses here and there. In chapter 2, verse 11, here's what it said about him. For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, there's a whole context I'd like to get into, but I'm... I'm, I'm forcing myself not to, but the key in this is just what we read. There is no respect of persons with God. Guess why? That's part of God's mercy. God looks down upon us as the human race, His creation. He doesn't look down upon us for our race, if you want to see it that way, nationality, for our social economic ability, for our intelligence. He looks upon us for nothing at all except to look down upon my life and say, you know what, if I lay down the process of obedience as he had in this word, and you, sir, obey it, I'm on your side. That's a huge paraphrase, but that's the truth, and that summarizes by using just that key verse right there, verse 11, that can almost summarize chapter 2. Because chapter 1 ended with the terrible sins that man can get involved in. Chapter 2 begins with him saying, Thou, O oh man, you're inexcusable. There's no excuse for you for the life that you could live or potentially might live or some do live. There's no excuse. But down here in verse 11 he says, However, God is no respecter of persons. So to the Gentiles who are listed as the sinful group in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, over to the Jew who thought they were the righteous group, he says to us, God's not respecting you. Not under New Testament times. I wouldn't have to be born a Jew to be a part of God's kingdom. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, go a little bit farther with me. Chapter 3, just the next page. I've got to turn one more time because of the layout here. But look with me in chapter 3. You'll recognize these verses surely. In verse 23 to begin with, he says here, or it's, uh, Paul writes, For God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now we know that. Verse 24, those where I want to get, because here's what it says, being justified freely by His grace. Guess what the first cousin of mercy is? Grace. Unmerited undeserved favor that is caused by the extending, ever-reaching hand of God. We saw a word this morning in our context about the love of Christ and how that is, it is basically the telescope where Christ looks into the uttermost end of our lives and sees us and loves us anyway. That's the context, in a sense, the same mindset, I should say right here, of whom God has set forth, watch, I'm sorry, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what the most merciful act that has ever been committed by anything, beings included, personalities is what God is, in the history of the world? You just read about it. Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. 
Number next, that was chapter number three. Going to chapter four. We're building up to chapter 12. Chapter four in verse eight, I want to pick out verse eight here. Here's what he says to us. Blessed is a man. Now that's more than happy. That means to be completely supplied and sufficient. Blessed, verse eight, is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, I joke a lot, as I did this morning, somebody came out and told me, hey, Mumford speaks like Glencoe speak, it's fine. We don't use the word impute very often. But in literal terms, what he's saying is, you're a blessed man if you've gotten yourself to a place through his love and mercy where he does not any longer hold to your account your sin. I may commit things in my life, and this shouldn't be the case, but I may commit things in my life, sin, to which I never forget nor forgive myself. To which I may always hold to my own charge. And for that matter, we know as humans, you or someone else may hold it to my charge, or I may hold something to your charge. Not God. Because of why? His mercy. Go to the next chapter. That was chapter 4. Um, go on over to chapter 5. We find something else. Very first verse. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's what the scriptures say. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That means communion, those who are drawn together because of the agreement that God made, not our agreement. But we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, next verse, by whom we also have, we covered this three or four weeks ago, by whom we also have access by faith, which is this grace. When you stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word access. Yes, why we have access to God? Because of Jesus. As I may have illustrated it then, that access is as if Jesus walked in, grabbed each of us as individuals through our obedience by the hand, walked us in the throne room of God and said, God, this is your son. This is your daughter. And we never again have to be reintroduced. We never again have to be uh, put in a position of being rejected by God. We just have to live that faithful life, verse preceding that. Number next, that was chapter 5. Going to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is famous uh, for uh, no, no longer being in bondage to sin, having sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Look in verse uh, 6 to begin with, though. Chapter 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Kind of the similar idea to chapter 5. That the sins and the body of sin, the body filled with sin that we have, is destroyed. Why is that? That henceforth we should serve, we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is, here's where I wanted the key on, freed from sin. You know, again, one of the most merciful acts God committed aside from the cross, that he cut the sin loose. He no longer remembers it, but we're no longer burdened in bondage, in bondage to it. Now that's one of those hard to get over things. One of my favorite sermons I've ever heard of any preacher, and, and you know it, of James Rogers. He's probably been preaching this sermon. He may have preached this sermon when he was here 40-something years ago for all I know. But I heard him preach it in 2005. It was called A Man, A Servant of Sin. And he preached it right out of this chapter. 
And he hammered all the way through the fact that we as children of God do not have to be enslaved to sin anymore. And that's what the world is. The world's enslaved to sin. Why? The mercy of God. Number next, chapter um, 7, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation. That is nothing that can pin us up against the wall and, and lock, away, lock us away behind the key prison door. There is now therefore no condemnation to them, here's the, the disclaimer though, which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why is that? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. Now that's referencing a little bit to the Old Testament. We're not making all that discussion but the point is still the same. We are no longer in condemnation. What does that imply? Without the mercy of God, we're nothing but condemned. No one who stands in a courtroom wants to hear that they're guilty as charged. Even though they're arguing and their lawyers have argued, I, I didn't do it, I didn't commit the crime. No one wants to hear you've been condemned to life. Or in some cases, condemned to death. There's no condemnation. Next chapter, we're almost there. Let's go into chapter 9. Why would he speak of the mercies of God? Well, we've given already at least eight reasons. Chapter 9, let's move over to verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. What if God is willing to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? Watch this. Vessels of which wrath is fitted of destruction. What are we seeing here? Because of the mercies of God, we don't have to be destroyed. Now, now, there's a misconception there. Don't let me apply this wrongly, but there's a misconception there that if you go to heaven, your life's preserved. If you go to hell, your life's destroyed. Not in the case that you'll ever cease from the pain and cease from the anguish and cease to exist, but from the perspective of what we know true destruction would be like for us on earth, that's the only picture we can draw. That's by the mercy of God. Next verse, we're in chapter 9. Let's go on into chapter 10. We're ever so close now. In chapter 10, I want to notice really a couple of verses here. But in chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ did the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That is, just as he was no respecter of persons in chapter 4, if we believe in God, we can obtain righteousness. Drop down to verse 9 of the same chapter, chapter 10. It says that, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that the Lord Jesus shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be, next word, saved. Very next verse, verse 10, we're familiar with. For with the mouth man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, I'm sorry, and with the mouth confession is made unto, there's that word, salvation. What does that imply? We needed to be saved, we needed salvation, and it's by context of chapter 12, the mercies of God, that that takes place. Chapter 11, not a whole lot farther you can go than the chapter right before it, verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, verse 31, even so have there also now not believed that through your mercy, or through, speaking of God, but through your mercy, that they should also obtain mercy. For God hath, 
For God had concluded them of unbelief that he might have mercy upon them all. Guess what? The, we, where we are. You're reading it with me. Chapter 11, verses 30 through 32, which goes right on to say, verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are thy judgments and thy ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given him and shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him all things whom be glory and the and to, to whom be glory forever. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. See what I skipped? I skipped the words chapter and the number twelve because biblically and contextually, that's why we find the mercies of God. Now, if you want to understand that better, you take all those verses from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, up to 12 and put them back in their context. Read the whole chapter and you've got it. That's what's revealed. So number one, motivation. What's your motivation for serving God? If it's not among those 12, 13 reasons, some odd, I don't know what it could be. That's basically the soul-searching text of the Word of God. Now, let's keep on in the verse here. We've we spent plenty of time on that. Not only do we understand or should we understand His motivation, now we get in the part we're more familiar with, and that's about our presentation. Motivation, now presentation. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's look at the idea, or think about at least the idea of the presentation. What are we offering to God? He's telling us that we present our living bodies seemingly to point out to us that we don't have anything we can leave out. Now, I'm going to put this on the most practical level for my understanding, but that is God's in control of my mind. God's in control of my eyes. God's in control of my mouth. God's in control of my ears. God's in control of my hands. He's in control of my feet. He's in control. He should be at least allowed to have control over everything that's within me. We're not presenting to God. It does not say present, present uh, let me get the first word here. And uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by mercy of God, that you present the part of you that you would like. Or the part of you that seems convenient. Or the part of you that, that seems most, uh, that you're most willing to present. There are parts of my life. James Edward Merle, 42 years old, from Munford, Alabama. Lived in several states, preached in several more. There are parts of my life that honestly, if I had option to take out the view of God and not to have to give to God, I wouldn't. That's as sincere as I can be. There are things that run through my mind and that my eyes see and my ears hear, and that's just the most basic of the senses that, that happen on a regular basis. Where if I had to stop, and I'm trying to call myself to do it because I'm committed, but if I had to stop and say to God, God, right now, check me out in that area and see what I'm worth. I'd have to be honest and say, God, I hope for once in your life you're blind, deaf, and dumb. That you see nothing of me because we don't want to be seen. You grew up as a child. I, don't, I didn't know you. Most of you, I certainly didn't as children. You grew up as a child. What did you do uh, outside or maybe sometimes inside the presence of your children? I've got five children. I'll tell you what all of them have done. They've done things that they thought I didn't notice and hoped I wouldn't see. 
He said, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. God's been merciful to you. So why don't you present your whole body? And I'm implying the word whole because it's really in the Greek there. That you present your whole body as a living sacrifice. Now something that's sacrificed is something that's going to die. It's going to be done away with. You're not going to have access to it. We've all seen many people in our lives, loved ones, friends, family members, whatever, leave this life, at least leave, as we would call it, their, their physical bodies, their, their physical houses. Leave them and go, hopefully and Lord willing, on into heaven's gate. What have they done? They don't need that body anymore. You know the best way to end up inside of heaven, this side of heaven, is to go ahead and give God your bodies now. Not to stand in judgment and say of yourself, well, God, you know what? If I had known the plans that you had for me, then my body would have been open and ready. No, your body has to be open and ready if you're breathing. And remain that way. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, one of the things that we can notice about sacrifice, again, we're looking at context, uh, not only a biblical context, the context of the languages and, and all of that. We're looking at context as far as Grammatical language, but as far as um, time frame, life of Christ, cultural time frames that I've already referred to a couple of times this morning and maybe even tonight. In their day and time, time of writing, Book of Romans, early first century, early days, earlier days of the church, what did they think about? They thought about those physical blood sacrifices that were laid on the altar to which they took as they laid that meat or laid that animal upon the altar they had two flesh hooks and they would take each of those flesh hooks and pull them up and jab them down in the meat and pull them up on the other side and pull those down in the meat and that meat would be bound held down you remember back in the, in the account of Abraham going to slay his son Isaac on Mount uh, yeah that mountain Mount Moriah you remember what he was doing? When, when the Lord stopped him, he had already bound his son and was about to take his life. Sacrifice. Drain forth the blood. Pull out the blood. That's what he was going to do. You see, those flesh hooks that existed then in the Old Testament are no different than the ones that exist today in its truth and love. And if the truth of God will not hold us down, we better pray the love of God will. It's that important. I've opted not to turn into my Gideon Bible, but I have opted to tell you, you need to go and read Malachi chapter 3 tonight. Because in Malachi chapter 3, those Old Testament people, knowing the ins and outs of prophecy, knowing the ins and outs of the law itself, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, knowing all of that, they were coming before God and offering Him the worthless, lame, broken, blind animals, everything they want to get rid of. As I heard one of my good friends of the older generation who could get by with it one time, he said, it's like us when we have a, a pantry in the back of the building, you'll bring that sauerkraut and beans that's been dripped on under the sink and bring it and throw it in the pantry. That's our lives. Giving God as they did sometimes, giving God our half-baked selves. 
Not accusing that on any of us except for to say that we're all typical and that's not what he asked for. Context of Malachi 3 says, take that stuff down to your governor and see if he'll take it. And your governor doesn't want that. God certainly doesn't. So we're talking about the motivation. And then we're turning and turning in the context here, talking about the presentation that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? Literally, one that is holy, acceptable, and it is of the... Uh, and holy, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. What is holy acceptable, which is your reasonable service. You see that phrase there, those two words, reasonable service. The word service could be interpreted or translated worship. The word reasonable is, is probably the most interesting word to me in the context. Hold on. Logia, something of that thing. Now that's, that's Mumford Greek, not Greek Greek. Logia. And it's where we got our English word logic. And it implies in here that we give God just that what's logical. Now, based upon what? Based upon his mercy. Based upon what he's done for us. Some translations actually choose to use the word. I don't want to misquote. I want to say the old ASV, 1901, uses the word logical service, which is your reasonable, your logical service. You carry that word a little bit farther and you boil it down. I'm talking about logia, however you say that. The center of that word, the root of that word is the older Greek word logos or logos, which spoke of whom? Jesus Christ. So let's put that in context. I beg of you, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that I offer, as God would say, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, that which is holy, meaning set apart, acceptable, not by men but by me, and perfect. I'm still trying to quote verse 2, ain't I? Which is your... I better look at it. See, y'all confuse me. Is it y'all fault? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God that you... Um, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, except on God, which is your reasonable service. What's logical? What the Word of God causes us to find logical. Now, here's the key in that. Why probably those root words mesh in the Greek? That is that to serve God by man's standard and by what man knows already in his heart outside of this is not logical. It wasn't ever logical to follow Christ. Uh, we beat down and we accuse and we point fingers at those first century Christians, many of which would become heretics and, and, and all of such. But guess what? Many of, many of the, uh, the Jews, especially the Jew, Jewish leaders, they refused to see Christ for who he was. Why? Be honest, it wasn't logical. Not unless they applied the word, logos, logic, God. Now, let me tell you something else about this word because I hadn't even told you the word that goes with the point. Calculation. Our motivation leads to our presentation, which has brought us to a point of calculation. You see, in order to understand that it's logical or reasonable to serve God, you've got to calculate that. You've got to put A plus B plus C and see what comes out in the end. You've got to, in other words, put your life, the sins that you commit or not, and then see in the end if the end result is equal to heaven 
or in this case, God's acceptability. Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse eight, the apostle Paul, I assume we don't have the question. I'm making an assumption here. But the Apostle Paul is asked, why, why do you work so hard? Why do you labor so much? And Paul says this in verse 9, Wherefore we labor, that means toil, skin of our knuckles are taken off, wherefore we labor that we might be accepted of Him. We work for God. I, if I do anything in this life from a spiritual perspective, I'm going to do it for God. We didn't read it, but we could have picked out several more scriptures as we led up to chapter 12 to show about God's glory, the way that we are glorified as He is glorified, and so forth, the way that we serve. Chapter 6 as a whole, yes, we're not servants of sin. Why? Verse 16, because we've chosen to serve God. Whether it be sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Calculation. Number next, moving in finally. As you would hope, probably, verse 2. Not only our motivation and our presentation, our calculation, but here's verse 2. What about our insulation? Our insulation. Back, uh, I was starting to tell David, and we, we broke up the conversation. I never completed it. I won't complete it for you. But back earlier in the week, a squirrel, I think sometime back, because I rarely drive that little pickup out there, but a squirrel got under my hood and ate, I think probably, ate the installation off my spark plug wires. So I got in my truck the other day, going to be bop off and do whatever I was going to do, and I cranked it, and it ran a little rough. So I said, I better not leave the yard until this thing gets to clicking a little bit better. And I circled the yard once, and it quit. It wouldn't start back. So like any mechanic, I said, oh, this is bad gas, you know, carburetor, whatever's in there. I don't really know. But, you know, fuel injector's messed up. So I just got another car and went and bought all this stuff to pour in the gas tank. Got home. Wasn't any plug wires left. The insulation was gone. They burn into it was gone. No cranking, no starting, no running. Had to be repaired. The thing about it, what I'm relating this to as I come through it in my mind is that when we consider what he says here, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, what he's saying to us is you better put up a, a barrier between you and this world and don't let you, and you've heard it explained this way many times, don't let the world pour you into its mold. One of the more common professions in Jesus' day was actually what we would call, not necessarily as modern, but what we would have called or would refer to now as blacksmithing. Where iron, metals, whatever it is, iron particularly, is heated to a certain temperature so that it becomes what? Pliable. And then through a series of hammers and, and different tools, it's, it's beat and it's molded into whatever those men, and some of them were very skilled, Wanted it to be an easier way, however, was to heat it even farther to melt it and pour it into a mold. We take the shortcut nowadays and you go home and find something in your house that doesn't have plastic on it and you'll understand. Why? It's so easy to mold. 
So he says, so you need to put, a, put some insulation in your life because the world is coming in and they're trying to conform you. They're trying to mold you. They're trying to make you what they want you to be. And the whole time, you're trying to be what God wants you to be. So I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Finally, I got it. And be not conformed to this world. Don't, don't put up an insulation. Put up a barrier. Don't be conformed. Now, uh, again, I, I thought about going to another passage right here. You can put in your margin uh, the first chapter of Psalm. Because what's happening there in the first chapter of Psalms, he's talking about where you get your counsel, <laughs> who you listen to, who you're going to, to follow. And are you going to follow the men who, who seat, are seated as the scornful and stand in sin and whatever else is listed there? No, should not. You get down toward the latter of that chapter, verse 3 through 6, and he says, no, you need to be like a tree that's planted by the water. Why? Because the tree that's planted by the water is always reaching for the heavens and digging into the earth. Meaning by that, no matter what he's gaining from the river that comes by, from the nutrition in the earth, he's just trying to get up and get out. Insulation. Number next. Be not conformed to this world, but yet be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What is that? That's the easy one. Transformation. Transformation. If you're not going to let the world conform you, then what you ought to be doing, what I ought to be doing, let me stop saying you, what I need to be doing is to be working in a constant process to let myself be transformed into something better. No matter where I stand right now, no matter where you stand or sit tonight in your life, as far as your salvation and sin is concerned, no matter what that is, there is a part of you that could be much better. And it really hasn't yet to be seen. There are three people who sit in the pew right where you do tonight, right where I would sit right now. You know who that is? It's who I am right now, who I would be if Satan got a hold of my life, and who I'd be if I took my life and gave it to God like he's already requested in the preceding verse. What could I be if I gave my all to Christ? I gave everything I have to offer to God as he's already requested and let him transform me. Greek word, something like metamorpho. I think I heard a sermon you preached here a few years ago on tape, CD, where you may mention the word metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis, which in school I didn't understand until the teacher brought out the butterfly and said, do you see that caterpillar? Do you see what's in there? Do you see what that looks like? Do you see how repulsive that is? Now you watch that thing inside of that jar with the, with the netting on top. You watch that thing in a few weeks and you see what comes out of that cocoon. Illustration's easy. If God wraps me up, if I let Him wrap my life completely up, when the grave claws like they did for Lazarus come off, there's nothing coming out but Jesus. Because that's what needs to be on the inside. 
that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how that happens. It's when I start thinking like God thinks. You say, oh, well, you're assuming I can know the mind of God. No, I'm assuming we have the mind of God and I can learn the mind of God to the best of my expected ability. That's acceptable from preceding verse. It'll be acceptable in just a moment. By the renewing of your mind, next part of the verse says, you can see it on your page, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. What am I going to use that phrase for? Well, if we've had motivation, if we've had presentation, if we've had calculation, if we've got insulation, if we've got transformation, I think I promised you five, I'll give you six. What about realization? Realizing what God wants me to be and starting in my mind being that that you may prove, word for test, means to be tested, to be tried, similar to what I was talking about, about conform, melted down to see what's left. All the dross, all the evil, all the sin, all the worldly things are, are boiled away, nothing left but, as we would have said in that day, or Jesus would have said, but pure gold. The greatest of refined metals. But he says it's by the renewing of your mind. That is, and I'm quoting James Rogers on this one, that is to have a mind that is brand spanking new. We had some people help us a little bit a little while back, just a few weeks ago. David asked about it on the way out of lunch. We got a new van, used but new to us van. He said, y'all enjoying it? I said, not really, because we won't ride in it. We're still riding in the old van for fear someone will scratch or spill or something in the new. Because to me, it's brand spanking new. I don't want it to be corrupted. I don't know if we'll ever drive it. Grateful, but brand spanking new. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's what God wants for real. Good is what is assumed to be good. Acceptable is what is known to be good. And perfect is what God rewards as being good. There's levels. You ever gone down the old Sears and Roebuck? Some of you would have called it that, or maybe an earlier name than that. You ever gone down there and looked at the appliances that I think they closed most of them, but the ones they had, good, better, and best. That's, that's what he says here. You can be good, or you can be acceptable, or you can be perfect. Sinlessly perfect? No, no, sir, no, ma'am. Complete. Greek word that backs this up would be a word that was used in Jesus' day for the maturing of a chicken. All the parts are there. It's ready to be used. How committed am I? If I am, it's because of the motivation that sets me into the position 
of applying myself for the presentation, which will ultimately result in judgment, that is only caused and only set forth because of the calculation where I say, you know what, because of all God's mercies, I can't help but attempt to stand acceptable in His sight. Because I'm sure that I'm going to do my best, we would say dead level best, to be insulated from the world, transformed into God's mold Himself, not theirs, because I know the realization, and that is I'm going to have to face God in judgment. Commitment. In essence, no turning back. It's related by our Lord in reference to the old cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and to Lot's wife. No man having put, him, put his hand to the plow and looking back is literally Greek fit, acceptable for the kingdom of heaven. That's Luke's account. Are you committed to God tonight? The only way to set yourself up is to be willing to sacrifice yourself tonight. Sacrifice to what? To obedience. To obedience to whom? To God. Why? Because of His mercy. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, then through a very simple pattern that even Jesus Himself would lay out while upon earth, you need to first hear His Word. We've, we've only looked at a, a minute or two of it. But hearing His Word, believing it. We might have discussed all this. You say, well, that's fine, but I don't believe it. I don't believe God requires all of me. Sorry that you might feel that way. I don't, I don't expect that you would. Be willing to repent. Because you see, the way you pick yourself up and stand and turn toward the throne of God to be presented, open and naked before Him is to say, that life is not, that's not my life. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, through confessing His name and ultimately being baptized in that blood, that's not my life. That's not your life. If you're here tonight and you are a child of God's, I'm assuming most here tonight would, would say that about themselves because of that obedient pattern. If you're not a child of God's and you cannot stand before God tonight and say that I am absolutely fully committed to you into all those points and more, why not? Will you come to God tonight? Through repentance and prayer, begging of Him. He's begging us. Begging Him. Prepare my sacrifice. Let me be to you what you are accepting. Let me give you my best. Would you do that tonight? We're standing to sing an invitation song pretty much right now. This is a great opportunity. Stand and let's sing the invitation song that was selected.